We'll go ahead and get rolling. How's everybody doing today? Good? All right, well, we've got a few announcements, and we'll get things going this morning. So uh, we'll start with this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll be sure to pray afterwards for this. But uh, just want to give you an update on Melanie. I'm sure that some of you have questions. Maybe you've talked to Avery and he's given you an update on that. So, um, so basically, if you don't know, you know, she's had a kidney stone, uh, a rather nasty kidney stone for a long time that they haven't been able to do anything with. Uh, my understanding is if they were to do something about it, it would be kind of invasive, a big surgical procedure, all this kind of stuff. So they've just kind of stayed away from that. But occasionally it makes her sick, it brings discomfort and all this kind of stuff. So now uh, where where the kidney stone is, it's made her sick. So they go into the hospital on, they went to the hospital on Friday and so long story short, just infection in the bloodstream, so kind of a nasty situation. She's pretty sick. Um, uh, 
and Jamie's fine with us saying these things because he wants you all to 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 pray for her. Um, but kind of, kind of a big deal. Uh, she's uh, they had some issues with her vitals when they were going in to do a procedure. They were going to do a stent for her to to whatever it is to take care of the situation. All the medical stuff that I don't understand. They were going to take care of that, but because of her vitals, kind of went crazy while she was under to have that stent or whenever she was getting that procedure started up they backed out of that so blood pressure went way down heart rate went way up you know and they said this is just not not good so we don't need to go through this so they're keeping her in ICU monitoring her good news is this morning when Jamie got back there and pray for Jamie in this way as well and we will you know, you know the Vaughns, they're very, very, very close. And for Jamie to have to be away from his wife, especially when she's hurting like this, is really tough for him. Uh, they would not let him stay the night there last night. He has to follow the one visitor rule uh, just as anybody else would. So no one else, I, nobody can go, can go visit at all, you know. Um, and so he's back there now, obviously, uh, first chance he got this morning. And he sent me a text, and he said that uh, her blood pressure has stabilized. They had to do some stuff. Uh, to make sure that would happen, but she hasn't had to have any medications for her blood pressure since 9 p.m. last night, which is which is a good thing, and uh, so that's so that's good news. So still an ICU, still a still a uh, still sick, still a you know I, I don't want to I don't want to be alarming unnecessarily, but I would say still a, a serious situation, and so uh, we're we're going to spend some time after announcements praying for her and praying for all of that process. Um, Where's Travis Grove? Travis Grove, can you greet those people that are about to come in there and make sure they can find a seat? Um, so anyway, so that's that's uh, an update there. Maybe Avery can fill you in on more of that. I, I don't know if he's heard something else since I have, So, uh, but we'll be praying for, for Melanie. The poor poor girl's not a stranger to the hospital. You know, I've been in there with her and the Vaughns many times for different things. She's strong, you know, uh, but uh, this is just making her making her feel bad. So, uh, women's night tonight at six thirty. You'll be covering chapter six in the book that you've been going through. So that's tonight at six thirty. Uh, men's night. We're doing things a little bit differently. Last week I announced that we would do men's night tonight. Uh, kind of double booking situation. So. We're, women, you take the building. Tonight is your night, six thirty. Men, we're going to shoot for Thursday night at seven. If you can't do it, that's fine. I get it. Um, no worries. Those who can show up, we'll have a good time of encouragement and fellowship, and we'll do that. Uh, we'll be starting the book of Habakkuk next week. So we've been deliberating. Some of you are like, who's the, who's that? Where's that? So you know, just go to the New Testament and 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 head and head west. And uh, you'll find it eventually, right there around the Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Nahum situation. So uh, we're going to be going through Habakkuk. It'll we'll be in it for six or seven weeks uh, before we move to another book of the Bible. But uh, we've been working on that, and I've talked to Austin about that yesterday. And he was looking through it, uh, a book that's near and dear to him. He's got a great way to outline that. So we're excited about getting into that book. A different perspective since we've been in the New Testament for a long time. Looking at God's sovereignty, looking at God's power, looking at how to look to God in a time of unrest and 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 things of that nature, and trusting God's judgment, trusting God. It's a a timely book as we look at it from uh, an ecclesiological or a church perspective, as well as a cultural perspective. So I can't help but notice this handsome man who has returned, you know, to our to our presence. Jeremy, welcome back, buddy. So so. Looking a little, looking a little muscular and defined. All that running, so you know, uh, good to see you, buddy. Glad you're, glad you're back. So, um, uh, 
so that's that's next week. We'll start Habakkuk. So I encourage you, it'll take you about 15 minutes, go and read the book of Habakkuk, get an idea of, of what we're going to be getting into, familiarize yourself with it so that when you show up next week, you'll be ready to hit the ground running. Next week will be our Haven Ridge pool party at the Groves, so May 30th next week. That's going to be from 4 to 8 p.m., um, details about that. I think we had decided again, remind me of that. Caroline's not, yeah, Caroline remind me. You, you, so I don't butcher it any more than I would give us details. Okay. Yeah. Bring, bring your kayak and float around in the pool. You can go to the to the uh, snake and snapping turtle infested pond right down the hill and kayak around in there, swim. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. So some, some, some other news here. So Benjamin, uh, Benjamin graduated from Bethlehem. They had their commencement service and all that kind of stuff, I think Friday night. And so they are actually moving back to Greenville, all right? So they'll be headed back this way. They're actually en route, I think, today. Uh, but they're going to they're gonna stay in some family has a beach house. So they're going to spend probably the majority of the summer there because Mary's working long distance, all this kind of stuff. So they're going to be there. But they are going to be back here next Sunday for that one Sunday. Then we'll see them again on a regular basis towards uh, towards the beginning of the school year, the end of the summer. Having said that, he did reach out to me and ask if anybody is available, they're going to be staying. I think initially, hopefully it's not a surprise to y'all, at the, you know, in Antoine Lasandra's. So guess what? You know, so, uh, so they're, they're going to be arriving at Antoine and Lasandra's. Ideally, they're, they're, they're shooting for tomorrow night. Um, so he was asking if, let me just make sure I've read this text correctly because I asked him to be sure. Uh, they'll get in tomorrow, but let's just plan if anybody's available to help them unload on Tuesday evening. They have one trailer. They don't have a lot of stuff. They're kind of minimalist in that regard, so it wouldn't take long. So anybody that can uh, help them, text me, reach out to me. I'll give you a specific time for, uh, for when we'll be doing that. All right, so again, that's Tuesday night sometime. I'll let you know when I know better from, from them uh, about maybe helping them unload and get settled into the Hendrix where they'll stay for um, years. Did I say that wrong? <laughs> you know, so. Uh, okay. I think that's, uh, Austin, am, am I, have I left out anything? Anyone else have I left out anything for announcements? Okay. So, all right. Today we have a, uh, a, a special guest preacher, Jake Elliott. Who's gonna be uh, Who's gonna be preaching for us? You know, I, I I misled you a few weeks ago. I said that it would probably be five minutes or so. I've read his manuscript. It won't be five minutes. We've conditioned you all for lengthy sermons, so just prepare yourself. Uh, but Jake will be coming. He's been working on this. Uh, I read it. He has fantastic content. Jake is a very thoughtful man. So so just uh, be praying for him and encouraging him um, as he as he prepares to come up here and share with us uh, what he's been learning and what he wants to share with us. So uh, let's do this. Let's take a moment. And we're going to pray for Melanie specifically. We'll pray for our missionaries after the children's moment. But we want to take time to pray specifically for Melanie right now. And uh, just ask God to really intervene in that situation. So let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would intervene. 
God, by miracle or by medicine. It's all you. It's all you. It's all your power. It's all your grace. It's all your mercy. And we ask that you would carry the Vaughns through this, that you would carry Melanie through this. Lord, that she would, in, in, in a very real sense, have a peace in the midst of this. Lord, as I know in her mind, it's troubling. I know for Jamie, it's troubling. I know for Avery and for Zach and for all of us who love the Vaughns so very much. It's 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 hard right now to stand here. We feel well, we're healthy, we're good, and they're missing fellowship here because they're again in a hospital room in an ICU. And Lord, I pray that you would bring them comfort and grace. I pray that you would bring them great peace. Lord, I pray that you would give them great hope. I pray that you would cause whatever the doctors are doing, Lord, to be effective. Lord, if you choose to go the medicine route, Lord, but we ask that you would do a miracle. We ask that you would take this kidney stone and remove it from her body miraculously, Lord. We don't know that you will. We know that you can. Lord, there's nothing in Scripture that promises us that you're going to remove this kidney stone, so we're not those types of people, Lord. Um, we cling to the promises that we know are, are offered, Lord, that you are powerful, that you are mighty, Lord, that you work miracles, that you are worthy of praise for those things. Lord, we also know that even if you don't, that you're praiseworthy. We know that even if you don't intercede in this way that we're asking, you're still worthy of um, an infinity of our worship. You're still good. Lord, even if it doesn't come out the way that we ask for you to bring it about, Lord, you're still good. There's still no darkness in you. Lord, we understand that sickness, we understand that pain, we understand that these things, uh, especially to this degree, is very much a product of the fall. Lord, we accept that and we understand that. But, Lord, you are gracious even in the midst of that. Lord, you provided a way for us not to succumb to the casualty of the fall in that you've provided life in Jesus. But, Lord, you've also provided uh, other means to, uh, to, 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 to be removed from the reality of pain. Lord, you've given us medicine. You've given us uh, the medical community, and you've given us medical procedures. Lord, you've given us... Uh, medicine of the mind and of the body and all of these things that we have to recognize our grace that you've that you've set aside for all and lord you cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust and we look at your mercies and your grace in the same way especially common grace maybe not salvific grace because we know who that pertains to but lord we ask that your grace that your grace and your mercy as it pertains to Melanie's body and as it pertains to Jamie and Avery and, and, and Zach and all of our minds with regards to them, we ask that your grace would fall on us and fall on them now. We ask that you would restore her body to full health, not even partial health, but to full health, Lord, so that she can enjoy wholeness again. And Lord, would you give them perseverance that in the midst of this crucible, in the midst of this fire, that they might be refined Lord, that all those looking in would be encouraged and see the hope that they have in the gospel. Lord, and they would understand that that's where our true hope comes from because without the gospel, there would be no hope. There would be no true life. There would be no reason for celebration. There would definitely be no joy. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of this, because of the gospel, because of that reality, they would even find joy in the midst of this hardship because that's where the rubber meets the road for Christians as it pertains to the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and we'll worship.
Kids, if y'all want to come down front, come on down. Come have a seat. My kids, too. All right. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Good. It's good to see everybody. All right. Well, we're, we're, we've entered into a new section in our, in our book, Big Truths for Young Hearts. Okay, looking at who God is and who we are made in his image and what God has done for us in sending Jesus. Okay? And so we're into the section about the, our, our great and wonderful salvation. So we're talking about some just wonderful things about the salvation that we have in Jesus. And last week, Mr. Allen talked about the part that God plays in bringing people to salvation and, and how wonderful and wise uh, and awesome that he is, that God would even save anybody, right? Because we're all sinners and we all inherit that from Adam, right? Adam was the, 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 the first person, right? Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned, okay? And, they, and, it, and everything broke after that. And people, every person in the world that came after them, they inherit that sin nature, and so they deserve eternal separation from God and punishment for their sin. So it's grace that God would save anyone, okay? So that's what we talked about last week. And God is worthy of praise because of the grace that he gives and the mercy he gives through Jesus, okay? But this week, we're going to talk about, well, what's our part in that salvation, okay? Because God doesn't save people kind of like a, uh, a superhero and come down and go, pew, 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 right? 
it doesn't work that way. Okay? So we're talking about what is our part in salvation. When God gives this gift of salvation to somebody, what does that look like? What's our part? And there's a great story in the Bible in the New Testament in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, that gives us a good picture of this. Now, how many of you guys like pictures? Okay? I love pictures too. Yes, Mr. Joey loves pictures. Okay, love pictures. I'm, a, I'm the picture guy, okay? If you haven't figured it out, I'm the picture guy. So I'm going to give you guys lots of word pictures, okay, today that hopefully will be helpful. All right, but in, in Acts chapter 16, there's a story in there where the, the apostle Paul and Silas, who's sort of his co-worker, they're, they're jailed, okay? They're put in jail for preaching the gospel. They're beaten, okay? And they're in jail and they're singing hymns, and they're praising God, and they're praying at night, okay? And the jailer's there, all right? And then suddenly, in the middle of the night, God sends a, 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 his miraculous power, causes an earthquake to happen, okay? And the, sh the shackles and the chains on Paul and Silas fall off, and the prison doors fly open, okay? What, what, do, you think, what, what do you think you would do right then and there? You leave, okay? Yeah, I, if I'm honest, that's... That's probably, yeah, faint. Okay, yeah, I, that, yep, very, all, both very, very true. Well, you know what? The, the jailer comes in, okay, and he's, he's terrified because, yeah, okay, that's a scary event. But he comes in, and he's expecting that Paul and Silas have left, okay? And initially, he doesn't see them, and he's about to kill himself because this is a big deal. If, if, I mean, that is his one job, make sure nobody escapes, okay? And if somebody escapes... He loses his head, okay? And Paul and Silas, they didn't leave. And they said, no, 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 sir, don't, don't harm yourself. Okay, well, this jailer, who's, he's not a follower of Jesus, okay? He's amazed at this, and he's heard Paul and Silas singing and praying all night long. Probably kept him up. And he asked them a big, big question. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, let me ask you this. What would you say to that man? What would you say? Um, you believe in God. Okay, believe in God. Okay, believe in God, believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and that he died on the cross, okay, and ask him to save you. Okay, wait, hang on, go ahead. Okay, read the Bible. All right, what else? Okay, worship him. All of these are great answers. One more. Okay, and to pray. Okay, very, very good. All right. Well, these are all very, very good answers, okay? You guys are hitting the nail right on the head, okay? Let me kind of help clarify this, okay? When the Bible talks about our response to God's gift of salvation, when he convicts us, when he shows us who Jesus is and who we are in light of who God is, okay? There's, there's two responses that are like two sides of a coin, okay? Who knows what this is? That's a quarter. That's, it's a quarter. I know, it looks a little smaller right here, okay? Wesley, where did I get this quarter from? Well, no, I, I'm asking you. Okay, now it's public knowledge. The offering box, right? I told Wesley, I said, you make sure I put this back because I don't have a quarter on me. I'm not stealing. It's not stealing if I say I borrowed it. I'm using it for an example. Hush, Joey. All right. How, what's on one side of a, of a quarter? Okay, George Washington's head. Okay, all right. Now, what's on the other side? An eagle or a lot of other things. Yes, an eagle or, uh, yeah. 
A lighthouse? Okay, all right. Yep, there's, there's, another, there, there's another side of the picture that traditionally in the older quarters, okay, they had an eagle on it, okay? Then they did the bicentennial and, you know, all the states had different ones. Yeah, it got confusing, okay? The point is, one, the, the coin has two sides. If you picked up a coin that only had one side, what would you think about that coin? Would it be real? It's half a coin. Would you think that coin's real? Probably not. Okay. So we think of salvation. Our part in salvation is like two sides of one coin. Okay. Repentance and faith. All right. And, th- and this is, this is, this is the, the charge that, that Paul and Silas gave to the jailer. Said, uh, said to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Okay. So that, that charge has two parts. Faith and repentance. Okay. Faith is looking at Jesus and seeing him for who he is and trusting in him, okay? And repentance is turning from your sin. It's looking at your sin and seeing it for how bad it is, okay? Think of it this way, okay? Let's imagine, let's say before you heard the gospel, you were, you were like a person in a dark room, okay? And you were picking up these little shiny objects and you're going, wow, these are just wonderful treasures. And you stick them in your purse, you stick them in your bag. How many of you guys like to do treasure hunts like that outside? Yeah, okay. You're picking up these shiny things. You're like, these are awesome. This is great. This is, yeah, these are precious. These are precious things. You're putting them in your pocket. You're stuffing them in there. This is great. Then all of a sudden, the light of the gospel comes on. And do you know what you're picking up? Cockroaches. What would you do? Ah, ah, empty in your pockets. You'd be getting rid of them. Why? Because cockroaches are nasty, right? Okay. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. That's the same thing. When God shows us. Okay. Okay. You, so you're getting, you're getting the example. I told you we'd have lots of word pictures. Scared of bugs. Yeah. Me too. Some of them. So you're getting the picture. Okay. When God shines the light of his grace on us and we see sin for what it is what we were once treasuring that was sin now is horrible to us we say oh that's terrible i don't want that anymore get it away from me okay and instead we turn (coughs) excuse me and we treasure jesus sorry and we treasure jesus jesus becomes our greatest treasure okay because we weren't wanting to follow him before we may have had a God in our own image that we wanted that would serve us, but we didn't want the God who actually is, who created all things and is worthy of our worship and worthy of our lives. Okay, but when the gospel shines into our hearts and we see what Jesus has done for us, we see how horrible sin is, then we turn toward Christ and we trust in Jesus. Okay, so there's repentance, there's turning from sin because it's loathsome to us, it's horrible. Okay, and we don't want it anymore, and it's turning to Jesus. Okay, and that's trusting in him. That's putting our faith in him to save us from our sins. Okay, let me ask you this. Okay, so, th- so there's, the, there's repentance and then there's faith. Let me give you this example. Okay, let's say, let's say you went, um, uh, uh, let's see, car keys won't work because um, y'all don't have cars, right? Okay, you have a car? Okay, well, we'll use, okay, well, let's think, all right, well, let's do that then, Okay. Let's say, let's say you're going to, okay, let's say you're going to go out and you're going to drive your power wheel, okay, you're, or, okay, and you're leaving the house and you're going to go get it, it's in the yard, but you know what, oh, whoop, you forgot the key, it's sitting on your nightstand, okay, 
Yeah. So you turn around and you go back and you get the key. Okay. So repentance and faith looks like this. It is turning away from sin and it is turning towards Christ. Okay. Do you see that when you turn, a, when you, when you turn, it's, it's a two part turn. It's turning away from something to something else, right? You turned away from going towards the car to then turn back and go towards the nightstand where the keys were, okay? Repentance and faith works like that. We turn away from our sins, and we turn towards Christ, and we want to follow him, okay? So that is, that's the part that we play in salvation, okay? Because, again, God doesn't just save people by just going, right? He opens the door of the light of his grace into our hearts that we see sin for what it is, okay? And we repent of it, and we, tr and we turn away from it, and we turn towards Christ, trusting in him and wanting to follow him, okay? Is that helpful? Are those pictures helpful? Some? Okay. Well, good. Well, good. All right. Well, let me pray for us, and then you guys are dismissed. How many four- and five-year-olds we got? Any of them in here? Sorry. Three and four. Numbers, not good. I do words better. There you go. All right. Well, if you're three and four, okay, and your mommies and daddies say it's okay to go with teachers, teachers are going to meet you back at the back door, and you guys can go for your snack and for your class, okay? Yes. All right, let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the gift of salvation, and what a, what a wonder and treasure it is that you have given us the ability to participate in this gift. Father, never that we might be able to boast and say, you know, I was smart enough to figure this thing out or look at me and how great I am. No, repentance and faith is all about the grace that you give us in Jesus that no one may boast. But Father, that we might turn, turn away from our sins and run from them and run to the cross, that the burden of our sin would fall from our shoulders and roll away that we might be clothed in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and we might live forevermore following Him. Father, we thank You. Thank You for the blessing of salvation, the gift that it is. Father, I pray that You would open the minds and the eyes of these young folks this morning, that they might see Jesus, Father. They might see their need for Him, and Father, they might come to faith in Christ. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. You guys would just stand with us one more time. The mystery of the cross.
before Jake comes, uh, let me pray for him and also pray for our missionaries. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, that is what we sing. That is our message to the nations. Come and worship a holy God. Come and worship a holy God, a God who is unlike any other who breathes entire universes into existence. Who can hold the stars in balance and yet still fashion a blade of grass. Who desires in his display of beauty to clothe the flowers of the fields in splendor and color. To exhibit seasonal changes in the world. To put life into existence and from the highest mountains to the deepest depths of the ocean. To speak into creation and fashion one being among millions who's made in his image who would suffer the breaking of that image, the taining of it through sin, and yet in wonder and awe, through the drawing out of the narrative of history that He is writing, would display His righteous justice and His mercy and grace. On the cross, when the very Son of God, the third person of the Trinity, Christ Himself, would bear the sins of many. That God might redeem a people for Himself. This is the message we proclaim to the nations. Come and through Jesus, through His mercy and through His grace, worship. Be brought near. Something that wasn't available in the Old Testament. It was stand afar, be far off, lest you die. And yet the veil is torn. The curtain is torn in two. The barrier is broken and we have, we can come with bold access into your presence, Lord. So, Father, may we be faithful. May we be faithful to take this message of the gospel across the street, across town, to those who need it, which is everyone. And may we be faithful to take that message to the ends of the earth. And so, Father, I lift up to you our missionaries who are in Bangladesh and China, in Africa, and in other parts of the world. Would you keep them faithful? Keep them faithful to the message in the midst of suffering. Whether that's a thorn in the flesh, whether that's a, a, a virus or an illness that debilitates their physical capabilities, may they cling closer to Jesus. And in their weakness, Father, may that make the gospel stronger. That they would rely more and more on you. If that's persecution, Father, may they say with those in the New Testament that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Just strengthen these missionaries, Father. Strengthen their faith. 
that when all seems lost, that they would cling to the cross, the blessed hope they have in Jesus because he is the only hope for the world. Now, Father, as we come to this point in our service, would you bless Jake as he comes with the message he's prepared, Father? Would you speak through him to our hearts? Bring conviction where it's necessary and it's needed. Father, bring praise that our lips would ring forth what is true in our hearts, our love and devotion to Christ and desire to follow him in faith. So would you bless your word as it's read, as it's proclaimed. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jake, you come. Test, test. Good morning. I guess it's now or never. I apologize to everyone sitting in the splash zone this morning. I will try not to spit all over you. And apologies to everyone expecting Alan and Austin. You get the C team this morning. Good morning, Jeremy. Hey. I can't tell you guys what an honor and a privilege it is to be able to be up here this morning. I'm honored that Alan and Austin would share their platform with me. And I'm honored to have the opportunity to preach to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm also terrified. Um, a, you know, public speaking, and B, I'm responsible for rightly dividing the word of a just and holy God. Uh, so my, my goal, my aim this morning is just kind of stay out of the way and let scripture speak. So I'm going to do that the best that I can. How awesome is it that God can use men as means, that we have the privilege of being used as means, and God can work despite our inadequacies? When Alan first asked me if I would be, you know, interested in coming and speaking, yeah, uh, he said, just preach on whatever you've been studying lately. And I've been doing a lot of studying on the covenants used in Scripture. It's incredible how God sets up and drives redemptive history using covenants. How he ties together this massive narrative of Scripture using covenants. He you know, if we want to know more about how, who the church is and how it's related to Israel, if we want to know how the Old Testament ties in to the New Testament, if we want to know about imputation, if we want to know about the end times, it's all affected by covenants. I can't think of an area of scripture or theology that isn't touched by covenants. A.W. Pink says this in regards to covenants. A true knowledge of the covenants is indispensable to a correct presentation of the gospel. For he who is ignorant of the fundamental difference which obtains between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is utterly incompetent for evangelism. But by whom among us are the different covenants clearly understood? Refer unto them to the average preacher, and you at once perceive you are speaking to him in an unknown tongue. Few today discern what the covenants are in themselves, their relations to each other, and their consequence consequent bearings upon the design of God and the Redeemer. Since the covenants pertain unto the very rudiments of the doctrine of Christ, ignorance of them must cause obscurity to rest upon the whole gospel system. Now, Pink uses really harsh language here um, and throughout the rest of his book, The Divine Covenants. And I, I think he has a bit of a chip on his shoulder, but 
what he says is, is true. You know, covenants are instrumental in how God drives redemptive history. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the 1689, the Second London Baptist Confession, somewhere in the sermon, so let's go ahead and do it. Chapter 7, paragraph 1 says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have obtained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. So at this point, you're probably pretty clear on what we're going to be talking about this morning. If not, please see me after the service. My objective this morning in Genesis 2 and 3 is to look at what makes up a covenant. And we're going to see how the agreement between God and Adam in the garden fits the criteria of a covenant. We're going to look at the kingdom that the covenant is used to create. And then we're going to look at the consequences of the covenant and how it is fulfilled in Christ in Romans 5. Before I dive in, I'm going to address this. Some people have an issue with the term covenant of works. Because covenant is not used in Genesis 2 through 3. Um, you know, it's, it's not. But I don't think I should just pack up my toys and go home. Um, I think we can use the duck test here. You know, if it looks like a duck, if it swims like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. And furthermore, I believe that later passages of Scripture reflecting on this, I'm probably going to get in trouble for that, reflecting on this agreement refer to it as a covenant. So we're going to briefly look at those as well. I think later Scripture interprets this agreement as a covenant. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into Genesis 2, 5 through 17. It's a lot of verses. <clears throat> when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the, on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day of it... For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the big question this morning, what is a covenant? I think today, you know, we, covenant is used a lot in the Bible. Um, so we know it's important. But often I think today that we think, you know, covenant is some kind of term that was used way back in Bible times. And it's not really something that we can relate to today. And to a point that might be true, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But essentially a covenant is an agreement. It's... It's a contract between two or more persons. And we enter into agreements and contracts all the time today. You know, when we're setting up our, our internet, when we're getting phones or buying houses, paying rent. You know, we're familiar with this, with this uh, idea of contracts or agreements. And so a covenant 
is made up of commitments, I will, you will statements. It's made up of sanctions, which are threats that keep people from breaking the covenants. It's made made up of federal headship, and we'll talk about that. And then the covenant has a function. What, what is the purpose? What is it trying to accomplish? And so first we're going to look at the I will, you will statements, the commitments of the covenant of works. And so like I just said, when we're getting, you know, internet, we agree to pay a monthly fee for internet service. When you're buying a house, you agree to pay a monthly fee and the, you know, uh, mortgage company allows you to live in their house. In the covenant of works, Adam has several commitments. In the garden, we see that Adam has dominion over all the earth in verse 26. He is to work and to keep the garden in verse 15. He is to fill the earth and subdue it in 28. And he is to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. These things that God commands Adam are what we call positive laws. They are tied to the covenant of works. They, they belong to it and they're meant for a certain place and for a certain time. And there's another aspect to the covenant of works which is called the natural law. Um... These are laws that we are expected to follow because we are created in the image of God. God does not owe us anything for following these laws. We don't earn any favor with God by doing these things. They are expected of us because we're created in his image. Dr. Tom Hicks puts it nicely. Natural law is nothing other than the reflection of God's moral character in human beings who are made in his image. So like I said, these laws do not depend upon the covenant of works or any other covenant but they supersede the covenant of works and all future covenants. These laws exist as an outworking of the nature of God. So what are these laws? Well, we know that Moses was given a physical summary of these laws in the Ten Commandments. But that's not where God's law originated. You know, in before, you know, pre-Sinai, we see when Cain killed, a- killed Abel, it was referred to as sin. Um, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph, we know that that was sin. When Abraham met Abimelech, and he introduced his wife Sarah as his sister. You know, that later that night, Abimelech was thinking about Sarah and said, hey, that was an attractive woman. And God comes to him in a dream and says, hey, that is not Abraham's sister. That is his wife, and so I'm going to prevent you from sinning against me. So even before we had the Ten Commandments, these people were still held accountable to a law. You know, they were still held accountable for their actions. Romans two fourteen through 15 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Paul is saying that these Gentiles, these people that don't have the law, these people that don't have the prophets, they don't have the traditions, these people have the work of the law, these people have God's law written on their hearts, and so they know they have a general understanding of morality. And, you know, today we hear that everyone has a conscience. It's often uh, represented by, you know, an angel and a devil sitting on someone's shoulder and arguing back and forth. But everyone has a, you know, basic understanding of morality. For instance, if I go anywhere in this world, right, anywhere on the planet, and I go up to some random stranger and I punch him, it's got to be him, in the face, you know, it's probably not going to end well for me, all right? And he's going to be upset, and rightfully so. Likewise, if I go anywhere on this planet and I take someone's personal property, if I steal from them, they're going to be upset with me. So these are all basic, um, this is basic morality that everyone understands. And it's not like all of the nations, all of the countries got together one day and said, hey, these, these are the basic laws that we're all going to have. 
No, everyone understands these things because we are created in the image of God and we have God's law written on our hearts. Just as a quick side note, uh, so this is why Christians can consistently say things like life matters and we can talk about things like justice and injustice because we have this law that we can look at and say, okay, this is, this is how it is. Non-Christians who believe that you know, we've evolved from dust, from pond scum, stardust or pond scum, and that we're nothing more than you know, a colony of cells and reality is nothing more than just chemicals fizzing in our brain, they, they can't give a good answer to why life matters, what is justice, what is injustice. So this is, this is an area where Christians can come and speak truth to the world. But back to the point I was making about Adam being under this natural law. In Romans 5.13, it says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So even though there wasn't a physical law, like we said, post-Sinai, people were still held accountable for their actions because they are created in the image of God. Now, we could probably have a whole sermon series on God's law and its application, and maybe we will someday. That sounds like a good time, but right now I'm going to get back to Adam. Um, So to recap real quick, the requirements for Adam in the covenant of works are the positive laws. He has to protect, take care of, work the garden. He has to multiply, don't eat of the fruit, as well as this natural law that we just covered. And that's why this covenant is known as the covenant of works, because to earn God's blessing, to you know, have eternal life, Adam has to work. He has to earn it. And that's opposed to the covenant of grace, which is all by God's grace. So everyone staying with me. I know this is kind of academic, uh, but let's be honest. What were we expecting when I got up here? Um, we look at the commitments that Adam had to fulfill. Now let's look at God's commitments. What does God have to do in the covenant of works? What is his, you know, uh, I will statement? In return for Adam's perfect obedience, God is going to grant eternal life. The tree of life stood in the garden as a covenantal symbol of what was promised to Adam upon completion of his errand, confirmed eternal life and communion with God in his presence. And similarly, we see in Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear the Spirit say to the churches, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise, which is in the paradise of God. We see the tree of life later in Revelation 22, where it is a symbol of God dwelling with his people in the final consummation. Now, we know that Adam was not obedient. Adam failed in the covenant of works. He broke the covenant. And covenants have sanctions. Covenant sanctions are threats that enforce the fulfillment of the covenantal commitments. In ancient Near Eastern times and ancient, ancient biblical times, they would often cut up animals and they would lay the animal parts in rows and they would walk between them. And the people doing this basically said, hey, if I break this covenant, let this be done to me. They were laying down their life on this covenant. And that's kind of where the, we have a disconnect between you know, ancient biblical times and today because generally you don't enter into covenant thinking, or a contract or an agreement thinking, I'm going to give up my life. You know, if we're late on our car loan, you know, you may get your car repossessed, you may have to pay some kind of monetary value, but you're not saying, hey, you can just go ahead and kill me if I fail to pay this. Um, We just, we don't do that today, except for maybe marriage. Um, There's some guys in here, and I'm I'm pretty sure they they would, they may disappear if they break their covenantal commitments. Um, I may be one of those, I I don't know. 
But back in biblical times, covenants were serious and they were not to be broken. The threat of the covenanter's death ensures that the benefits of the covenant cannot be enjoyed while simultaneously violating them. I can't violate the covenant and still enjoy the covenant if I'm dead, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty easy to understand. A commitment becomes a covenant when sanctions are put into place, guaranteeing the participation of the parties and the fulfillment of their commitments. In verse uh, 217, God threatens Adam with death if he failed to uphold his commitments, right? Adam would surely die if he broke the covenant. There wasn't any room for partial fulfillment. Just as the tree of life acted as a symbol of the promise of the covenant, the tree of knowledge of good and evil served as a constant reminder of the threat of the covenant. So we've looked at the commitments, the I will, you will statements, and we've looked at the sanctions. So let's look at federal headship. Now, federal headship is a fancy word, but it's, it's really easy to understand. So this is when God makes a covenant with one person who represents a specific group of people. And so the people that a federal head represents are directly connected to them, regardless of time, uh, descent, gen, 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 genealogical location. Okay. Uh, meaning that if a federal head keeps the covenants, then the people that they represent, you know, get the blessings. If the federal head breaks the covenant, then they receive the curses. Their right to the covenant and to the blessings and curses flow directly through the federal head. So there's two examples that I want to look at just real quick. So God makes a covenant to Abraham. You know, he says, you will have many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. And his descendants, he promised his descendants a special land. And so when, you know, Moses shows up on the scene and the Israelites are in bondage in Egypt, you know, God frees the people based on that covenant. They travel through the desert. They are a stubborn and they're an obstinate people just like us today. And they get to the promised land, and, you know, it's not like when you're in the car with your kids driving to, you know, Florida or Mississippi, and you're like, okay, I will turn this car around, right? They get there, and the first generation is punished, but the second generation, based on that covenant, he allows to enter the land. Another example is in Hebrews 7, 9 through 10. It says that Levi tithes to Melchizedek while in Abraham's loins. And that sounds a little strange, um, and we know that it's, it's weird because Levi obviously was not around at the time of Melchizedek. They're separated by several generations. But we see that Abraham acting as Levi's federal head was able to covenant, was able to tithe to Melchizedek. And so as his federal head, um, Levi was also tithing to Melchizedek. In Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, and this is in uh, 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Skipping to 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Skipping to verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So I think it's pretty clear here that Adam is acting as our federal head, representing the whole of mankind, all of creation. And when he, he broke the covenants, all man fell. You, me, everyone is legally fallen in Adam. You know, forgive me, I'm losing my voice here. Now, an objection I can see being raised. How is it fair that one man, that Adam, would represent me, would represent all of mankind? Similarly, we could say, 
why would God go through the trouble of creating everything, setting up this paradise, creating man and entering into covenant with him? Okay, God decrees all things, so God knows all things. So he knows what's going to happen at the end of this. Why go through all the trouble? I think Paul deals with a similar objection in Romans 9.20. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In Daniel 4, 34 through 35, it says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, bless you, and none can say his hand or say to him, What have you done? My answer to how is this fair, our God is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. This, this objection seems to come with the presupposition that God somehow owes something to man, but he doesn't. God didn't have to create man. He didn't have to set up paradise. He didn't have to condescend and enter into covenant with man. That was all by God's grace. So we see that this agreement between Adam and God, we have all the makings of a covenant. We have the commitments. Adam is to work the garden, to keep the natural law, and to not eat of the fruit. And in return, God will grant eternal life. We have sanctions. God threatens death, a physical and spiritual death upon breaking of the covenant. And finally, we have the federal head in Adam as Adam's actions affected all of his posterior, us. So I think these points are satisfactory to establish that this agreement was in fact a covenant. But in case there's, you know, we need to further proof, I believe that scripture later interprets this as a covenant. In Isaiah 24, 5 through 6, it says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. So this, this passage is describing a covenant that was violated, and as a result, the whole earth is ruined, and all the inhabitants are guilty. That, to me, that kind of sounds like what we've been talking about this morning. If that's not clear enough, we can look in Hosea, Hosea 6-7. It says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They, there they dealt faithlessly, faithlessly with me. What covenant does Adam transgress if not the covenant of works in Genesis 2 and 3? So we've looked at the commitments, we looked at the sanctions, we've looked at the federal head. We've established, I think, that this agreement was in fact a covenant. So now I want to focus on the function of the covenant or its purpose. The purpose of the covenant was to establish a kingdom of creation, thereby setting up Adam as a type of Christ, and thereby setting the stage for the rest of redemptive history. God uses covenants to create kingdoms, and these covenants function as the legal basis upon which God interacts with man in that kingdom. The covenant establishes the boundary of that kingdom, appoints federal heads, imposes laws, and other de all other details of how God will interact with the federal head and his offspring. So the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenant set up the kingdom of Israel. We see that it sets up the federal head, a special people that you know, God owns, the laws, the rules they were expected to follow, and then the land that they were expected to dwell in. The covenant of redemption in the new covenant sets up the kingdom of Christ and gives us a federal head, people, laws, and a place. The covenant of works, and then subsequently the Noahic covenant, 
sets up the kingdom of creation. We've already discussed the federal head of that kingdom and the laws, so let's look at the place. When I started studying all this, for some reason it just never hit me that Adam was not created in the garden. He wasn't created in Eden. He was created and then placed in the garden. We see in Genesis 2, 7 through 8. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. So while man is created for covenant, man is not created in covenant. It takes a special condescension of God to covenant with man and to prepare a place for him. I think it's also interesting that the Bible goes into great lengths to describe the Garden of Eden that uh, God prepared. And I believe an argument could be made that Eden was actually a type of temple where God's presence would dwell with man. So let's look at some of those features. I guess I'll read Genesis 2, 5 through 15 again. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. So the first thing to notice here, and I'm assuming that gravity and water works post-fall as it did pre-fall. So we, we say that water flowed out of Eden. And if that's the case, water flows down, I'm assuming Eden was at an elevated position. And we know that God's presence is often associated with elevated locations. We see uh, Mount Sinai. We see um, the mountain where Jesus' transfiguration happens. The temple was constructed on a hilltop. It's also interesting to note that Eden was in the east. And when God was giving instructions to build the temple, the entrance was to face the east. Notice the mentioning of the precious stones in Eden. You have the gold, well, good gold. You have... Um, I can't remember how to say the next one. Bedellum, I guess, and onyx stone. So we see precious stones used in the building of the temple and the tabernacle and Aaron's breastplate. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil may be perspective of the menorah and the tabernacle that uh, were made to resemble almond trees. God does not allow sin in his holy places. And so when Adam broke the covenant and Eve, they were exiled from the garden. When God tells Adam to work and to keep the garden in Genesis 2.15, the very same words are used in Numbers 3, 6 through 10 to describe the Levites' priestly duties. And this is the only other time in the whole of Scripture where these two same verbs occur together. 
Artistic gardens decorated the tabernacle and temple along with cherubim, which, as we know, was responsible for guarding the garden after the fall. And finally, the same Hebrew phrase that describes God walking with Adam in Genesis 3.8 is used to describe God's presence dwelling in the temple, in the tabernacle. And there's a few more arguments that have historically been given, but I'll, I'll stop there. Um, so this is the kingdom that the covenant of works creates. And now that we've looked at the kingdom, let's look briefly at the man who was to care for it. Adam as a type of Christ. <clears throat> now we know that Adam was given dominion of Eden. I guess he was king of the world. I mean, literally. So he had a kingly role and kingly responsibilities. And we saw that Eden is a prototypical temple, a place where God's presence would dwell with man and using these same words to describe the uh, Levitical priestly duties, he was to work and to keep the garden. So Adam also has a priestly role as well. So in addition to these roles, Adam was given the laws of God. He was given the terms of the covenant and instructions from God and was expected to teach his wife and his posterior children. And I believe Adam was there for, for a prophet as well. So Adam acted as prophet, priest, and king. I've thrown a lot of information at you this morning. I feel like very quickly. So um, maybe you're finding this all interesting. Maybe you're wondering how long until we can go to lunch. I promise we're almost a quarter of the way there. (laughs) Not really. Uh, We've looked at the components of the covenant of works. We've looked at the kingdom it creates. And we've seen how it sets up Adam as a type of Christ. Now, maybe you're thinking, this is great, but how does this affect us today? Why, you know, should I care? Because we're going to set the stage for the rest of redemptive history. We've already covered how Adam broke the covenant of works, how we as his posterior were, are now guilty before God because of that, how Adam failed as prophet, priest, and king to obtain an eternal glory for himself and his descendants. Now I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret, and you may not believe this, but stay with me, do dramatic pause. People are messed up, all right? <laughs> If you don't believe me, try watching the news for two or three minutes without getting depressed, right? Try going into Walmart at any hour and staying for any length of time. (laughs) Kelly and I were actually shopping in Walmarts uh, two or three weeks ago, and, you know, we're minding our own business. We're doing our weekly uh, shopping, and we're checking out, and Kelly looks over across the aisle, and there's a family, you know, mom, dad, and several kids, and as we do, we, someone gave the, one of the kids a $50 bill. Um, and as we can expect, he dropped it. And there's a man standing there, so he bends down, picks up the bill, and starts to hand it back to the boy. And the dad turns around at just the right time to see this guy holding his son's $50 bill. And so he calmly walks over to the guy, and they have a civil dialogue now. Um, he turns around, and he rushes this guy. You know, he's cussing him out and stuff, and the guy that's holding the bill's like, whoa, whoa, you know, trying to explain what happened. And the dad just rears back and punches the guy, okay? And he, he falls down. Um, so it was, it was pretty crazy, and we tried to tell, you know, the manager what happened, but she's like, we've got it all on the camera, so we, we were leaving, police came, and it was, it was a crazy time, but my point being that people are messed up, um, and I realize this isn't some big secret. If you've been here at Haven Ridge for any amount of time, we've been over this, uh, but I can do what I want with my 50 to 60 minutes, so we're gonna go over it again. Um, Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says something similar. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once, once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So man is sinful, and according to Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And so we, we have a problem here. Um, and oftentimes we hear today that, you know, God is love. We're all God's children. God wouldn't really punish anyone. And God absolutely is love. The scripture is clear about that. But God is not one-dimensional. He is just, and he is holy. He is the perfect judge. And he will not sweep sin under the rug because it is contrary to his very nature. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So knowing the consequence of breaking the covenant, covenant of works informs our worldview today. We go... Throughout this life, we go throughout our day knowing that we live in a broken world that groans for redemption. We interact with people who are broken. Uh, a great theologian once said, you know, wretch is going to wretch. Um, and it's true. We, you know, broken people are going to act like broken people. I might get in trouble for that one too. Um, we hope for the best, but we expect broken people to act like broken people. Um, and we as Christians, we have the answer you know, we have the hope. Romans five twelve through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So the rest of Scripture is a beautiful love story about how God rescues a stubborn and obstinate, obstinate people for himself and works to undo the breaking of the covenant of works by the first Adam. Now, in the aftermath of this tragedy, can you, can you imagine being Adam here for a minute? You know, you've got this perfect world. You're living in a paradise. You're king of your domain. You have the perfect wife, and you've, you've just broken it by eating the only fruit in the garden that you're not supposed to eat and as the whole world is being ruined by sin god comes up to you and it's like, what have you done and so god at this point would be perfectly just to wipe out adam to wipe out eve to just move on and say okay i'm, I'm done but he doesn't once again god responds with mercy by clothing adam and eve and making a promise and so god gives us this promise in genesis 3:15, what is commonly known as the proto-evangelium Got it. The very first gospel proclamation in the scriptures. Genesis 3, 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I asked Alan this morning if we could sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Because it gives us a small glimpse into how Christ has fulfilled the covenants. How he has kept the law, and because of Christ, we are legally counted as righteous before God. The wondrous mystery that we just looked at was given to Adam and slowly revealed through the rest of Scripture. 
this promise was fulfilled by Christ, the better Adam, the prophet that is the image of the invisible God, the ultimate high priest who was himself perfect and able to make sacrifices for the sins of all who would believe. The king of kings who reigns eternally and is seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and above every name that is named. This was the hope given in Genesis 3.15 and this is the hope of all men today. Because although man is born dead in his trespasses and sins, although we are guilty before a perfect and holy God, although we deserve hell, Christ condescended to take on flesh. And I I was thinking about this. I guess we get numb sometimes uh, because we hear it so often. But during, during some of the songs we were singing, the God of heaven left his throne in heaven, humbled himself to be born of a baby to a virgin, lived around 33 years, preaching, teaching, performing miracles, keeping God's law perfectly, performing his role as prophet, priest, and king, and then the holy spotless lamb, the lamb without blemish, offered himself to be hung on the cross for all who would believe. Let me ask you, what grave could hold the king of kings and the lord of lords? What power does death have over the God of life, the God that sustains all things by his very existence? Now, three days later, Christ by the power and the Spirit of God, rose, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And those of us who are in Christ have moved from this covenant of works in Adam, and we have been adopted into a better covenant, an eternal covenant in Christ as our federal head. Romans five eighteen through 21 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How does one partake of this new covenant with Christ? Romans 10, 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Repent, turn away from your sins, believe the gospel, turn to Christ and live. I appreciate you guys hanging in with me this morning. I know it was a little more academic. Um, but I think it's important for us to know why the gospel is necessary in the first place, and why man is guilty before God, why Christ had to come as prophet, as priest and king, to fulfill the law, to make sacrifice for us. And it's important to understand the promise that was first given in Genesis 3 that sustained all the saints of the Old Testament, and how that mystery slowly revealed through the rest of Scripture until it's finally revealed in Christ. Should I pray to close this out, or you guys got something else to say? Okay, sounds good. Lord, we humbly come before you today, acknowledging that you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, the great I am, who has created this beautiful story to save your stubborn and obstinate people. Father, I thank you so much for this church, for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for their, their love for you, for their, their love for truth, for justice, for truth. I pray that as we go through our throughout our day, we would remember that we are in a fallen world, but we, we have the hope that all men need. We have the hope that can make men whole again. 
Father, I pray for, uh, specifically for Melanie Vaughn, Melanie Vaughn today. I pray for healing. I pray for peace for her and uh, Jamie and Vaughn and Zach. I pray for a quick recovery. In your son's name I pray, amen.